Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing commandments. Jake is unfortunately out today, so your guide for this journey will be myself, Phil Cly, and Sam Kimbriel, the director of the Philosophy and Society Initiative at Aspen, and we will be discussing his What the Democracy Engineering Complex Misses, which he wrote for Wisdom of Crack. So great to have you on. Thanks for being there. Great to see you, Phil. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is actually the second time that we're doing this, so... uh, (laughs) This time I have plus pressed play on the on the uh, on the recording. Possibly but. third. So the background here is that Phil and I had uh, lunch together in New York and argued about this essay for like uh, a, I mean a nice boozy afternoon, and then we recorded this same podcast <laughs> last week uh, without the recording part, and yeah. now we're uh, actually going to present it to the world. This fine, well refined conversation. Yeah, it's either refined or it might have devolved. We'll we'll, we'll see, but um, it's possible. All right. Do, do you want to just sort of explain what the article is and 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 what impelled you to write it? Yeah. So uh, this piece has been prompted by something that I've actually thought about for a number of years. I really care about, and it it's um it's probably like the first uh, hint of a larger project that I really want to be kind of thinking and developing uh, in my work overall. So. We've sort of all found ourselves as uh, adults thrown into this kind of period of political chaos. And it's a period of political chaos that if you trusted people like Frank Fukuyama back in the 90s, we probably weren't supposed to experience where structures that seemed at least internally within uh, Western societies stable and robust and you know capable of casting like a long-term vision for society, we've suddenly found to be much more uh, unstable and rickety and internally having like internal crises of consciousness uh, in in a really significant way. And the, you know, the words that go along with those structures are things like democracy and liberalism. And, you know, even I think like a couple months after Trump's election, uh, the Atlantic ran a cover that said, is democracy dying? And that's, you know, like a real escalation from the kind of experience that people had, I think, like even a decade before that of uh, the kind of stability that these societies tried to prompt. So I've thought about this commerce, this, that issue a lot. And this piece comes out of my feeling like so many of the things that people are trying to do to defend or shore up democracy uh, seem to be really ineffective. And that includes, you know, like very high level things like the January 6th hearings that, uh, you know, like are getting broadcast on primetime television and uh, you have like large audiences for, I think that they seem not to be getting down to the root of issues about democracy very well. Uh, And then it also goes specifically to the kind of the like profession of democracy defense that has like really developed and runs through uh, places like the fine institution where I'm sitting right now at Aspen and through a lot of think tanks and, and allied NGOs um, and also like, you know, staffers that are like really concerned about the future of democracy and, and rightly so. So the piece is trying to intervene in that conversation. And um, yeah, I mean, we could talk a little bit about, about uh, how the piece actually works, but that's, that's really the background is this concern. Hey, how do we make this thing that we all care about work differently? Yeah. And you talk about how you find yourself at a lot of events dealing with the sort of problems with democracy and that a lot of them are focused on kind of 
technical fixes, right? And you say the first thing one notices about this new industry is that the language tends to be well dense. Recent reports in this genre include phrases like establish limits on poll watchers, strengthen protections for inspectors general, provide sustained public investment in educating voters about election mechanics, prioritize anti-corruption, anti-kleptocracy initiatives, select democracy support priorities with an emphasis on long-term, locally-driven, and evidence-based solutions. These are hard, inorganic words. Operative verbs tend to be fix, boost, re-engineer, adjust, calibrate. It's like democracy is a giant machine and we just need to get the fluid levels right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so if democracy is, is not a giant machine, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think my diagnosis of why these conversations have been so so ineffective is because we're You're not powerfully moved by that. You don't want to go to the <laughs> yeah. to the barricades <laughs> to fix, boost, re-engineer, adjust, and calibrate our democracy. No, you you can um, you can really feel the passions of the of the American people when you say anti-kleptocracy <laughs> initiatives. It really gets people moving. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that in a certain sense we're too precious around the category of democracy. So we we feel it's fragile. And so in that fragility, we end up um, not actually asking, hey, what is this for? Why would anyone like it in the first place? And how does that work? And the, you know, the way that I eventually answer that question as I go through the essay is that we love it because we love human beings. So feeling that I have there is that the less precious we are around the category and the more willing we are to actually just say, what's good here? And and how would we actually re reimagine what parts we want to save the better? And I think that in particular, we need fundamental defenses. We need to understand why some people didn't like democracy. Yeah. And the list here, I think, is is an interesting one. So like on the one hand, you have people like old, old people like Plato, also people that are identified with America, like James Madison, who are actually quite cautious about the nature of democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and and then you have more more recent people like Walter Lippmann, who argue, hey, democracy is is fine at one like scale, but like the larger you get, and now we are in these like massive globally interconnected societies, the less competent it is at being able to manage the structures of human life. You know, the sort of passions of the people are not going to be able to fine tune the, or, or, or get their hands around the kind of complex, I don't know, financial markets or whatever, right? You know, um, whenever you have a, a sort of, um, uh, complaint about sort of current inequality and a wish to sort of do something around the margin. Somebody who, who enjoys the status quo will always be like, well, you know, if, if you do that, you know, capital markets will dry up and then, and then everyone will be poorer off. So, you know, we just kind of need to continue <laughs> yeah. on this trajectory of greater and greater, greater accumulation of wealth at the top. That's right. Um, yeah. And you just, you know, yeah. you, 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 <laughs> you know, and so in order to counter that, you need some sort of expert who's doing things that the the simple people can't understand right and, and and in a weird way this echoes as you you mentioned Tocqueville right he says aristocracy is infinitely more skillful in the science of the legislator than democracy can be master of itself it proceeds wisely it knows the art of making the collective force of all its laws converge at the same time toward the same point it is not so in democracy its laws are always defective or unseasonable and you know that's the sort of modern, I suppose, aristocracy would be this sort of image of highly trained technocrats, right? Yeah, yeah. People, people who went to 
to the Ivy Leagues and then learn how to, you know, run statistics well, can understand complicated systems, and then make carefully calibrated judgments for everyone else. I mean, that's that's the new aristocrat, aristocrats. Of course, you know, I remember talking with somebody in, in, in government and they had spent a long time in defense-related things. And yeah. they got a political appointee who was a Yale Law School grad who I think is like in their late 20s or early 30s, right? And extremely smart yeah. person, didn't have any depth of knowledge in the industry, but what their extremely fancy education had enabled them to do was be very clever, clever at taking the uh, information they were getting from the experts and and transmuting it <laughs> in a way yeah. that was yeah. more <laughs> palatable to yeah. uh you know people higher up in the political food chain and so <laughs> you know i think that uh, whether the ivy leagues teach you to you know really understand the facts on the ground or just you know make you really good at manipulating symbols so that uh it's it's, it's there <laughs> the information seems more appealing to to the people in power is is, is an open question but Against that, we've, view, al- we've always yeah. we've always had a fine fine vocation for court intellectuals, and um, and it's, that tradition <laughs> yeah. still continuing. It seems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, against that, you say you know, uh, the turn towards proce- procedure jars because whatever else it may be, democracy is relentlessly and indelibly humanistic as an ideal. Democracy is anything but neutral. The entire ideal is built up from stout and controversial humanist premises that cannot be stripped away. To take the view that the people should rule is intrinsically to have a certain degree of confidence in people, to trust them, to be curious about them, to want to ask deep rather than thin questions about what they want, to make a public space that is in some fundamental sense responsive to human aspirations themselves. None of these ideals are trivial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the the basic um, argument that I that I really feel very deeply these days is that if we care about something like democracy, um, we actually have to face up to our convictions much more directly. We need the strength of our convictions in a way that largely we're squeamish about in public life Mm -hmm. at at the moment. And the squeamishness makes sense, which is that um, we tend to prefer neutral, mechanical, impersonal terms in part because we have this problem of like pluralism. Like we're not sure that if we say something specific and heartfelt and direct personal that we are going to, um, and you know, end up in a kind of agreement with the people around us. And so we end up saying, okay, let's just have, it's sort of, like the way I think about it is like, what if like the whole world could be an airport? Like it's not really specific. Like you can have like a couple of like, you know, locally themed restaurants or something in the airport, but like everything is supposed to be white marble and, uh, and, and, you know, like you have no idea where anyone is from or how it's going. And, and then like, that will be fine. Like we can all, we can all sort of adjudicate on those terms. I think that the, the argument that I'm making here is that democracy doesn't fit that model. Um, that if you want a democracy, you actually have to be quite direct about how controversial democracy is. And in particular, the part that's controversial is that we care about human beings, like that humanity is the central thing that we want, not competency or expertise, but or some sort of, of ideological strife or some sort of way of managing the, compl- you know, uh, sort of that's, that's, that's different right. factions of, of, you know, who in the past had led to violence and interstate conflict and so on, but rather that there's an ideal behind it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and, and there's like a kind of like 
maximalism versus minimalism problem here, right? So like the minimalist view is like, hey, let's just make sure that we competently administer resources and then right. everyone can make some judgments about how they want to do what they want to do with those resources on their own time. Like I, whatever that is, like that's not democracy. Like democracy is like having a big raucous public sphere where people yeah. can say like the big things that they care about, not just the small ones. And, uh, you know, if we're going to defend it, like that's how we should do it. Did you too, oh friend, suppose democracy was only for elections, for politics, and for a party name? I say democracy is only of use there, that it may pass on and come to its flower and fruits and manners in the highest forms of interaction between men and their beliefs in religion, literature, colleges, and schools, democracy in all public and private life, and in the army and the navy. It's Walt Whitman. Um, and this is... You know, this is the this is the ideal that very much appeals to me. That it's not about a kind of pragmatism. That there's a real sort of passion behind it. I I, I love you know Ralph Ellison's uh, Little Man at Chihaw Station, where he says, "In our national beginnings, all redolent with Edenic promises, was the word democratic." And since we vowed in a war rite of blood and sacrifice to keep its commandments, we act in the name of a word made sacred. And he admits that, you know, yeah. uh, because, because of who we are, we Americans are given to eating, regurgitating, and alas, re-eating even our most sacred words. It is that they contain a substance that is crucial to our national existence, but that except in minute and infrequently ingested doses, we find extremely indigestible. Nevertheless, there's that very passionate national mythos right um yeah. Yeah. founded in blood yeah. that is the furthest thing from a kind of abstracted disinterested notion of sort of problem solving uh, issues of administration and management right yeah exactly but but yeah, yeah but about our sort of <laughs> deepest beliefs Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like, you you and I are both involved in these kinds of, like, big conversations where, like, you know, we know a lot of people that are trying to throw out things like liberalism and yeah. and are feeling, like, really dissatisfied with the nature of the settlement we've come to. I mean, it's really interesting going back to the end of Fukuyama's original End of History essay, where he ends saying the end of history is going to be a very sad time, which yeah. is a like a fascinating and like strikingly honest, I think, d discussion. And I guess I, my feeling is like, we should actually take that sense of unhappiness seriously. And mm -hmm. the question has to do with how do we, how do we remember the, the way in which like the kinds of societies that we live in, like, like democracy as a whole was itself originally formulated as an answer to a question about human happiness and unhappiness. And, yeah. and, and what, yeah, like what is that human substrate? How do we actually feel or find our way back into that instead of just kind of assuming the structures that exist for us um, kind of by inertia? If the task is to replenish democracy, you write, in some basic sense, it can't be done at the level of means, but only at the level of ends. To put it another way, the future of democracy cannot be found in moderation or abstraction or technique, but in much more maximalist considerations regarding the full blood and heat and passion of human visions of life. To shed the language of mechanism is to turn to far more unnerving, expansive human words like trust, rage, bitterness, sorrow, tragedy, hope, love. Words that relate to the full complexity of being human and the range of ways that it comes out in collective life. 
I like that very much. <laughs> um, the question, and I think this is where the folks who are using those sort of hard, inorganic words of calibrating the democratic machine might come back at you. Where does that cash out practically? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fair question. I think that, I think that it happens on two, two registers. So I do think that there are short-term questions about the future of democracy that we should be dealing with in some fashion. And probably as we deal with those, like those are going to be tipping in something like a technical direction. There are mm -hmm. real questions about who gets to vote and how they get to vote and, and being attentive to those, making sure that we recognize that like the, the structural level does in fact inform our public life in some fashion do, does seem important. Yeah. But what the objection that I have to the majority of the, that approach is that whatever we're going to do about democracy, like that's, that seems like this sort of thing that you can do so that it works for another five years, or maybe mm -hmm. like 15 years. If what we're actually looking for is the way to build a civilization that can, you know, last on decades and century long time span, those are just not the kinds of questions that we first of all need to be answering. The questions that we really need to be answering are like, how do we be human within this context? And if we can build our sort of social structures in a much more human way, then it seems to me that we can actually have like long-term, like very lively, sustainable societies. And I, I suppose like my specific recommendations there have to do with, I, I you know, one, um, one piece of literature that is a real touchstone for me is um, Martin Luther King's Nobel lecture his, that he gives after he's awarded the Peace Prize. And in there, he starts with this, like, really uh, very pessimistic sentence, which is like, there's uh, one dark and haunting problem overhanging humankind. And then you expect him to talk about, like, to get straight back into the kind of speeches you've heard from him before about race and poverty. And he does get there, and, and war, actually, specifically. Yeah. But the great haunting problem, uh, first of all, is what he says is the inversion of m means over ends. And that mm. the incapacity to think about ends uh, yeah. ends up being a kind of like root cause for all of these other things that he's talking about. He quotes Throw actually. Um, and uh, Throw's line is, improved means to an unimproved end. And yeah. it it seems to me that we have put massive investment into means questions. And that's been true in uh, the kind of thing that I'm critiquing here, like sort of technical expertise. It's also true in the way that we've um, fostered technological development and honestly, like a sort of re real carte blanche given to capitalism in all kinds of ways. Like those are all means related inquiries. And my interest is in whether we can dedicate like, you know, not, like the likelihood that we're going to dedicate equivalent resources to ends questions seems pretty remote at the moment, but <laughs> at least like sort of like as many robust resources as we can throw into those, like what is human life about? What is it for? How do, what do we care about? What is the nature of justice? The, the better. And I, I do have some like sort of practical ways that I think that we could do that more effectively. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, this is like Jacques Ellul's point, right? That like our civilization has mm -hmm. become committed to, as Cummins Kellogg says, like the, the quest for continually improved means to carelessly examined ends. Indeed, technique yeah. transforms ends into means. Part of the value of that is that you, 
you can sort of rack up wins or at least feel like you're speaking concretely if you're speaking at the level of, of memes, right? Yeah. All of these things that you're sort of lightly mocking at the beginning of your speech are all practical things that can be done, right? Yeah. And yeah. then also, yeah. I think there's a way in a society where we are very interested in <laughs> like, how should I put this? Well, so let's talk about the Supreme Court, right? There's this sort of reverence that we're supposed to have for the Supreme Court, right? And then there's the way in which it's very clear. It's like the Supreme Court is a mechanism that we can get for particular policy outcomes that we would like, right? Yeah. yeah. And if the Supreme, you know, if we hold up one justice's nomination or you don't allow uh, a vote on, you know, whether somebody would be able to be a justice or not, you know, you, you get your preferred, preferred policy outcomes, right? And yeah. the interest is not in having like a great judicial body that will have these kind of erudite conversations about how one is meant to interpret the law and the role of the judiciary in American <laughs> life, but rather it's like, I want Roe v. Wade struck down or I want Roe v. Wade upheld. Um, yeah. And those things really matter to people. You know, you're talking about, you know, the sort of inorganic, passionless language versus things that people really do get passionate about, right? It is those yeah. things where gaming the system or demystifying the system becomes a route, a route towards, towards achieving that. And that leads me to another piece that you sent, because I'd asked, if, you know, if there were pieces that were sort of foundational to how you think. And you sent me yeah. this really interesting uh, article on uh, representative democracy by Frank Ankerschmidt. And yeah. Yeah. he's he makes the point, and it's about what representation means, what political representation means, right? And he, yeah. he makes the point that it's an aesthetic category uh, or that we need to rely on aesthetics to actually think about it. And he, and, and he says, you know, we normally associate the... Uh, American, you know, uh, democracy in general, representative democracy with the principles of the enlightenment, right? But he writes, as Carl Schmidt observed in uh, 1919, the enlightenment's mentality of clarity, transparency, and consistency was completely at odds with the principled unprincipledness of parliamentary democracy. Only romanticism with its respect for multiplicity, paradox, oppositions, and contradictions could have created an intellectual climate in which parliamentary democracy could thrive. And the point that he's making is in democracy, yeah. you take these points that people killed each other over previously yeah. Yeah. and says, you know, we're going to subsume that to this yeah. method where you sort of, as a principle, don't live or die by your principles, right? But accept certain types of outcomes. And yeah. Yeah. Th that is, that relies um, on romantic ideas and... And the person who is engaged in that kind of principled unprincipledness is a representative who is not a sort of um, kind of one-to-one -one representative of the people, right? They're not doing exactly what the people ask so much as they're representing them in a way that is where there's a gap, right, between... Yeah the tribune of the people and, and, and the people themselves. And that that gap is actually really important, right? Uh, that yeah. there needs to be a space for the representative to be representing the people by doing things they might not understand or have previously thought of. I mean, basically there needs to be a place for leadership, right? Yeah. Yeah. And 
in order for that, you need to understand that there's a that those gaps are essential for true representation, he writes. Being able to distinguish properly between aesthetic difference and serious misrepresentation is a measure of a nation's political sophistication. A politically naive electorate will see any difference between itself and its representatives as an impermissible distortion. A politically lazy and indifferent election electorate will not see distortion even if its representatives have recklessly reneged on all their promises. Um, yeah. That makes sense to me. I don't know if we got a little bit too abstract, but basically, <laughs> yeah, uh, that <laughs> the representative needs to have an important sort of difference from whoever they're supposed to be representing. So you see, you know, I was talking about Supreme Court justices, and 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 in many ways, like the current, like the Federalist Society, whatever the, the way that the sort of conservatives put justices into the judiciary, um, one of the sort of motivating factors of, uh, involved in that is like rage at justices put in the Supreme Court by Republican presidents who then sort of don't vote as they should, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, where a justice is seen as a representative and one who's actually supposed to correspond to the, you know, the people's wishes, right? Rather than yeah. be importantly different. And then when you're talking yeah. about senators, people in the House of Representatives, there's a way in which it feels to me, and I wonder how you how you think about this, whether the way that current kind of like news cycles work and the way that people's information works and the, the amount of sort of immediate feedback that people can get means yeah. that perhaps there's less of an opportunity for that kind of like creative and aesthetic difference <laughs> between representatives and the representative, uh, the represented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So to sort of sum up some of what we're, what you're just saying, I think the way that I would put it is the big question around democracy at the moment. Like why is it decaying? I think it's because we don't have, good viable answers to the question why do you love democracy like mm -hmm. that's actually like a big um we sort of assume it as a piety rather mm -hmm. than being able to to sort of actually interrogate and, and inquire into that and the way that i want to answer that question is we love democracy because we love human beings and the but then at that point it's like how do you love human beings how does that work and you can have what i what i was saying is like minimalist version so minimalist version would be like I do think like John Rawls is a great example of this. So we love human beings by ignoring all of their deepest, most comprehensive visions of life and making sure material distribution is as like equitable as possible. That's like a plausible view, but I think it's really mistaken. So what I'm after instead is a view that says we love democracy because we love human beings. And how do we love human beings? We love them because they're deep and not shallow. And that's why I like this Ankersmith stuff so much mm -hmm. is that like what he's saying is humans are not exhaustible. So the reason that the romantics are able to inspire democracy is because they have this vision of human beings, which are never quite able to be caught in the net of whatever their hierarchical technocratic leaders are. Like yeah. humans are always going to be deeper, have more profound visions of life and more profound, um, you know, hopes, anger, frustration mm -hmm. than what, uh, they're sort of like apparent representatives are going to be able to, to also capture. That they can't and that's good. Even we be, want that. Yeah. They can't even be necessarily reduced to the current state of their 
stated preferences and desires, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Like, that's um, right. you know, he, he makes the point that a like representations help to determine the nature of what they represent, right? Um, you know, which is obvious, right? Like people who form a deep attachment to a particular leader all of a sudden, like, <laughs> you know, what you thought was uh, the sort yeah. of policy bedrock of, uh, of a certain portion of the population suddenly shifts dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Engagement writes, without representation, there is no represented. And without political representation, there is no nation as a truly political entity. Hence, to put my case provocatively, even if it were possible to assemble the whole nation or to achieve the same effect by frequent electronic voting, we should still prefer representation. Political reality comes into being only when the nation has understood itself as rep as a represented. Without representation, no democratic politics. And then, yeah. uh, you know, he talks about that because of that sort of aesthetic gap, right? That you're not simply um, yeah. von Wool. The 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 representative then has a sort of uh, artist's creativity, right? The artist's creativity yeah. has its natural and exclusive locus in the gap between art and reality, representation and represented, right? And the politician's talent for solving problems depends on this ability to reformulate and redescribe disagreements. The politician must possess the essentially aesthetic talent of representa representing political reality in new and original ways. Not much can be expected from the political equivalent of the photojournalist. And he suggests that the aesthetic gap in representative democracies has now become too small rather than too large, right? That bureauc yeah. bureaucracies, technocracies, like those are the things that sort of are there to do exactly, you know, what the people who have set them up want. Whereas yeah. the politician yeah. is to take the kind of complex of current problems that we all find ourselves enmeshed in and reformulate a way of looking at reality. That allows us to move yeah. forward in new and unexpected ways, and that that is fundamentally an artistic yeah. task. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and I think it's, um, you know, I, I think essentially all of this is articulating a way of having it's it's a kind of refutation of Nietzsche. So like Nietzsche's mm -hmm. sense that in the end everything is just a contest of will and who gets to own what. And yeah. there are a lot of people currently trying to recast democracy in those those lines. And I think like what you were describing about what's happened with the Supreme Court is like a good example of that. Um, I mean, another one is like the hilarious idea that the Senate still calls itself the greatest deliberative body in, on earth, like <laughs> where where like a bunch of, um, you know, septuagenarians go and give speeches to no one except for to television cameras that will then get like churned back out onto social media where there are no, none of their actual colleagues in residence. Like that's you know, it's like, it's hilarious. And, yeah. uh, um, and, and I think, I think that the, what, you know, what's happening there, I think is very much what you're describing, which is a kind of slimming down of the willingness to pause in front of the complexity of human life and say, like, actually, the only thing that matters is this contest of will. I, I am still hopeful and optimistic, however, that, you know, human life remains deep and we yeah. remain you know, as much as like you might have the desire for a system of like control or or a system of just like, I think on the right, what you get is like the system of like brutal zero sum politics increasingly. Um, I think in contrast to both of those, I do think that, that something like this romantic vision of democracy is still really viable, which is um, create spaces where the kind of like 
bubbling, fermenting complexity of human life is able to come out in all kinds of ways. And and then like allow allow yourself to be okay with a politics that's like pretty tumultuous like that. Um right. I yeah, I'm I'm really in favor of that. So this sounds good to me. The the, the question that I have is that a lot of this is about sort of before you get to the kind of technical fixes, which I think have to happen, right? Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. No question. So, and it's less sort of, I think what you're saying is less in opposition to tech, technical fi fixes than like, you need to understand the ends to which you are putting these technical fixes. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you do the easier thing, which is technical fixes, right. but don't do the harder thing, like we're not going to get anywhere better. Right. If, if sort of the massive kind of social inequality that we have, right. Uh, an accumulation of wealth and, and, and you know, power uh, in the hands of, of, of a few is a, is a problem. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you want to put in technical fixes to deal with that. You know, it's quite like, why is that a problem, <laughs> right? What sort of society should we be aiming to uh, will necessarily guide the kind of fixes that you're putting in place. And I think that makes sense. One of the issues, though, is it does seem that there is a, I mean, there's a way in which kind of imagining ourselves collectively seems at odds. Uh, you know, when we talked over lunch, we discussed Benedict Anderson, uh, whose book, uh, oh God, what's it called? The... Uh, Imaginary communities, right? Imagined, communi imagined communities. Imagined yeah. communities, yeah. Um, yeah, imagined communities rather than imaginary communities is better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it um, could be both, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> About the sort of formation of a sense of national identity, right? And he talks about sort of two distinct forms of imagining the nation that really flower in the 18th century. And for him, these are the newspaper and the novel. Right, uh, and he thinks that they provide the technical means for representing the kind of imagined community that is the nation. Right, and a lot of it has to do with the way that time works in these things, where you know, in uh, the novels that are coming into being, and in distinction with sort of earlier work, you you have a way in which you'll sort of, and Iris Murdoch talks about this too when she's talking about these forms of novels kind of large social scene where all the individuals are kind of centers of their own significance, which is Murdoch's work, but they're operating in, in this sort of broad society in, in a time frame that is kind of, uh, working sort of moving in, in kind of calendrical time. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And their various different actions sort of interact with, with one another over the course of the novel. And he says, the idea of a sociological organism moving calendrically through homogenous empty time is a precise analog for the idea of a nation. So, you know, you read and he, he reads this, you know, uh, great Filipino novel. You know, you read a novel where, you know, there's like a, a poor person by the train station and, a, and an aristocrat reading the morning paper and, and you know, uh, a politician and a merchant. Then you sort of understand that all these characters and their various different actions are not sort of individual heroic stories of their own, but rather are ultimately going to in some way be part of a sort of broader project of explaining where they all interact in this society that is somehow bound together despite their, you know, sort of disparate places and origins, right? And that that is something that you really see strongly in 18th and 19th century novels and is one of the ways that people sort of grow to a greater consciousness of, of, of the nation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And and I would also say, you know, th- this is a point that uh, the German philosopher Schlotterdijk points out that like yeah, can yeah. can information right is another way of like presenting people with a particular form of history that they understand. Yeah, where you know you read a certain set of books and everybody kind of has these certain t- touch points which form a kind of imagined mythos. Um, yeah you know, that you can connect to. And so, you know, the, the sort of canon wars about what gets taught in schools are not just about, you know, what's good or what's worthwhile, uh, what's great literature and what's not, but what is important for imagining yourself in terms of a, a yeah. particular yeah. type of legacy, right? Yeah. And then the other form is the newspaper, right? Where, uh, and he, you know, he talks about how there's this extraordinary mass ceremony that happens or had happened, right? When, when yeah, print yeah. newspapers were a big thing with the yeah. almost precisely simultaneous consumption of the newspaper. Uh, the significance of this mass ceremony, Hegel observed that newspapers serve modern man as a substitute for morning prayers is paradoxical. It is performed in silent privacy in the layer of the skull. Yet each communicant is well aware that the ceremony he performs is being replicated and simultaneously replicated simultaneously by thousands or millions of others whose existence of, of whose existence he is confident, yet of whose identity he has not the slightest notion. What more vivid figure for the secular, historically clocked, imagined community can be envisioned? Yeah, yeah. And and obviously, you know, it's not that everybody was reading the same paper uh, or they, they were getting the same view of reality yeah. uh, from papers. Yeah. Uh, I think the wildness of different forms of reality that you get from different papers is, is true. But certainly that idea of that mass ceremony where everybody is sort of on the same page um, and touching upon a similar reality that, that feels very different today. Right. And also the forms of entertainment, you know, I think that the, the state of the novel as such is, is, (laughs) is, is not one, um, that performs, I think, the same role that it did in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, I do think, you know, I, I, I'm on board. Ellison argues that the novel is like the the, the perfect form for democracy, right? Yeah. For, you know, he says it, it deals with, a ch- with change in human personality and human society, bringing to the surface those values, patterns of conduct and dilemmas, psychological and technological, which abide within the human predicament, right? Um, it's a way of confronting reality, the nature of the soul and the nature of society. And I think that's all true. I think that you know, if you think of what those two forms look like today, it brings to myself the question of like, are we more fractured in terms of how we imagine ourselves collectively? And what does that do to your argument about what we have to do for moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me ask you a question on the basis of this. So like, do you see genres of writing or um, rhetoric or public engagement that feel to you like they're closer to this kind of like romantic aesthetic picture of political society that we've been discussing. I mean, you know, so like uh, Twitter feels quite far away, it seems to me. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, when we're talking about like the demise of the newspaper, like what we're talking about is um, like social media, largely like that you, you don't pick up like, one continuous thing and then run the 
run through the pedagogy that someone in some editor in New York has like set for you, like where you start on the front page and then gradually are able to kind of unfold the world in one consistent way. Now, like, you know, that the, the way you unfold the world is like curated for you by an AI somewhere. Um, Yeah. Um, You know, I always wonder how much weight I should put on this because, you know, like, you know, at a certain point, like the temptation is always to just start ranting about Twitter being bad and everybody kind of knows that it is. And, um, and yet like not how many people are actually on Twitter. Um, uh, how much does it matter? I do think that like there are new forms of imbibing entertainment. Print media is dying. Local papers are dying. And, and I think one of the things that that then happens is that feeds into other trends that sort of help nationalize local politics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which limits people's ability to, to, to find adequate representatives, I think in the uh, anchor Schmidian sense. Um, because, when your job is not to be a representative, but rather to be a reliable R or D vote. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of doesn't matter. Um, then you're, you're sort of undermining the, 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 what is moving about democracy, right? Yeah, um, I mean, that's that's almost like a case that um, our problem is not fracture, but homogenization. Yeah, I, I think- Like everyone becomes an R. Everyone, yeah, everybody becomes a sort of mechanism, right? And I think that, you know, there's this sort of, because in a weird way, like, social media is pretty raucous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, true. Um, but it, it provides this very rapid feedback loop, right? Yeah. Um, and it provides a fairly narrow feedback loop. I mean, like, it, it's just it, it's just a bizarre thing to see, you know, uh, a Democratic presidential candidate, like, referring to, you know, Latinx people, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, which I don't necessarily, I'm not, like, offended by the idea of Latinx, right? Yeah. But like yeah. it's 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 a you know it's a word that that signals not to the vast majority of the people that it supposedly signifies to but like to a fairly yeah. you know particularly politically progressive and relatively small portion of the population that's sort of overrepresented in in kind of like democratic policy circles and walks and stuff right and yeah. and and so it, yeah. it you know it feels like on the one hand like there is distance between our elective representatives and the people that's supposed to be representing, but that's because uh, they're, it feels very they're like they're much closer to a smaller and more politically engaged group of the electorate that has been taught to view things in a very kind of instrumental way at the expense oftentimes of like the, the, the issues that they like to care about. I mean, a good example of this is the, you know, like the abortion thing in, yeah. in Georgia where there's the yeah. candidate who, has these extreme pro-life positions, but it looks like uh, he's paid for abortions himself. 
And yeah. the response has been to kind of circle the wagons around him, right? And yeah. if you kind of look at things purely in terms of means, this is and this is the issue that you care about, that makes sense, right? He's a vote on one direction and the other candidate's not. Um, yeah. And yet it is more broadly, I think, kind of something that's corrosive, right? Like as, uh, you know, I've heard some pro-life commentators point out, I think David French made this point, like, if you care at all about this issue, right, suggesting yeah. that, yeah. you know, it's totally okay for a man to pay for an abortion and yeah. we don't have a problem with that and we're going to forgive him before he's even asked for forgiveness himself, suggests that you're hypocrites, yeah. that you're just as, as misogynist yeah. as, you know, sort of pro, pro-choice folks say that you are. And yeah. it, it just kind of makes the whole thing seem uh, utterly cynical. Yeah. Um, operation of power. Yeah. The, yeah. And so, so I think that technology does have a role in that. And I think it does have a role in sort of like helping herd opinion around outcomes, right? Uh, yeah. Very yeah. rapidly and without giving, um, giving much space for, for, for more kind of uh, a sort of slower, more reflective process that you would like uh, or that would be necessary if what you're interested in is a sort of artistic and aesthetic response to problems, right? And a creative one okay, rather so, than an immediate one. So maybe like one way to think about this, sometimes I think about politics and like political movements in relation to the affect that they draw to the surface. So mm-hmm. um, you can have one candidate who draws like a sense of in-group, out-group feeling like kind of suspicion, suspicion of immigrants, say, like to the yeah. surface, um, very recognizable in recent memory. And uh, that's like a way to build a coalition and it's a, it's a way to um, con- consolidate a movement. You can also have um, one that like builds, uh, builds their political appeal based around greed. And you say like, if you vote for me, like everyone's going to get rich. And that's why that's, that's the thing. And then, you know, the person sets that expectation at the beginning and then the whole rest of their political career is judged against wh- whatever that initial kind mm-hmm. of affect that they tried to draw to the surface. And I guess like I'm interested in, I think that we've been in a period where the affect that has defined our collective life is threat. So a feeling of um, the the basic sense that like if you yield, you actually will be like deeply violated in some kind of fashion. And I, you know, the, yeah. the question of how we've fallen into a political cycle where that sense of threat is showing up on um, like almost every side, like it's, it's fascinating to me that like you can get the same sense um, regardless of who, who is just one power and without, without like sort of the content actually like obviously having shifted yet but that everyone actually feels this sense of kind of in, intrinsic feeling that if they yield they really will get taken advantage of now i think that doesn't necessarily like i do think it's it, it's interesting then to think how could you shift our political culture to more expansive things like threat makes you like close down um like shift inward draw up defenses the question is like are there more expansive terms and they're not necessarily like always positive terms like i mean hope or um you know ambition these are like much more expansive versions of politics but also even things like anger like being able to express 
I, I mean, I think anger is a kind of hope that has been thwarted and being able to, to like have a political culture that actually wants to affirm here are like big ambitious hopes that we would want. And here are the reasons that we're really frustrated that those haven't come about. Like, yeah. I, I suppose like, I suppose that the, the thing that I'm interested in when we're talking about technology is like, um, are, are there ways to, yeah, like, I guess facilitate a shift from that, like visceral sense of fear that many people feel, feel now into a, a an affect that has a much more kind of resonant amb- ambition and also optimism that we we can actually like and and this goes back to the point that we were having earlier which is like humans are deep and there 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 is an inexhaustibility to our hopes and desires and aspirations and like being able to kind of filter for those deeper registers seems to me to be um re- really uh, fast, like a fascinating kind of opportunity for politics. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I mean, since, since I'm a fiction writer, I'm going to mention something that Iris Murdoch, Iris Murdoch had a complaint about 20th century novels. So she sort of like agrees with Benedict Anderson's kind of diagnosis of what the, of the kind of, of, of what the um, uh, earlier novel is doing, right? And she thinks that, you know, like, this is like the height of novel writing, Tolstoy or George Eliot yeah. or whatever. Um, and then she complains about 20th century novels. And she says that the modern novel, the serious novel does tend toward either of two extremes. Either it is a tight metaphysical object, which wishes it were a poem and which attempts to convey often in mythical form, some central truth about the human condition, or else it is a loose journalistic epic documentary, or possibly even didactic in inspiration, offering a commentary on current institutions or on some matter out of history. We are offered things or truths. What we have lost is persons. Yeah, yeah. And I like that a lot. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm 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 a fan of some of the novels that she is sort of implicitly critiquing. You know, if you think of like a, a tight metaphysical object uh, novel, yeah. you know, like Camus, was, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fairly obvious, or Newt Hampson's uh, Hunger, or I mean, plenty of novels, right? Um, and. I certainly think in recent times has been uh, a lot of the the journalistic epics, <laughs> documentary or possibly even didactic inspiration, um, which people have been invested by, which often seem designed to give us a particular answer. Yeah, yeah, uh, and which don't feel as as kind of open as as, as one might like. Uh, nevertheless, I do think kind of between those between those poles there the ways of imagining ourselves seem really, really fundamental to me. I mean, I've, I've mentioned a couple of times the, there is, you know, the critique of like, okay, what, what do we do practically? What do we do practically? But I do think that sort of how we imagine ourselves collectively is critical. We cannot actually succeed in anything if we do not find better ways to imagine ourselves collective, collectively as an entity, right? Uh, yeah. And it needs to be something that people can feel passionately about or else they will not be inspired to actually do anything in response to it. And the current things that drive our, our passions are sort of deeply factional, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the people who are most invested in politics also seem to me oftentimes mostly kind of interested in memes or seem interested in the idea that a kind of 
cynical and transactional approach to politics is is the sort of smart way to go in terms of getting immediate policy in, it, uh, outcomes yeah, when yeah. it feels to me very much that what we genuinely need is true moral leadership right yeah where ways of conceiving of ourselves in politics and how we choose to interact with each other as a society um, that we need somebody to articulate that in a very different way if we want to move forward. Yeah. And I, I mean, I suppose that does relate to the issue of threat. So I think that you can get kicked into a vicious loop where you're, you no longer have confidence that like human beings as such hold together. And instead you think the only way that there's going to be a viable future is if like our vision, our version of the like collective ends up winning. Yeah. And um, we, yeah, we are not, we're like somewhat into that cycle. I don't think that it's like um, completely irreversible now. I think that the, uh, the, there are features of our, of our, sort of sense that there is a commonality or a common community are still actually pretty robust. Yeah. And the, the, um, I think, I think though that like my intuition is that like, this is not going to be solved by centrism. Like, I think it's going to be mm -hmm. solved by like, again, big expansive visions that like can cast human life in like a different, much more like thrilling vein than like we've had for a while. And that, yeah, I think that that's where you're, hesitation about being too critical about the social media and things is right which is like okay look we've had like huge upheavals huge technologically prompted upheavals before <laughs> and like you know uh, like famously like plato uh, has like this great rant that he writes down against writing and yeah. like you know it's um uh it's like okay like we're there again like we're back in the my only way to denounce social media is on social media thing <laughs> and like okay fine <laughs> like uh um you know, we've we've gone through periods that have like had like actual wars prompted by by massive technological advances, and um, and we've also gone through them and like been able to kind of forge like new and distinct divisions of human culture on on that basis. I think that for me, the like hope is that we can do that. I guess I guess I'm really I'm re I'm resonating with what you said about like having leadership. That um, there is something about the like old idea of the mixed regime where like certain places like maybe like what the senate like could have like was designed right. to be which is like uh some place where you stop and you slow down and it's like like that version of representation is one where you allow very i mean this is i guess sort of like how the um house of lords now functions which is like you have like a, a lot of people who just talk for a really long time and don't have a lot of like direct political power they do have some um but um, it's not, it's now largely not just like enfranchised old people that, um, have it by right of family. It's like people that have done well in academia or literature who then end up getting elevated in, into the house of Lords and then spend time deliberating and speaking about things at, at one register. And then you have the commons, which, um, is just a lot of people yelling back and forth at each other and then eventually voting and like having some sort of like very diversified realms where we can, work out our, our sort of democratic and also our, our human problems in different registers seems to me to be um, like really valuable. And, and, it, and who knows like how we can build those, those um, venues now that we are where we are. But like, I think it's like really worth um, like worth consideration. Are there ways that we can 
you know, the weird thing about voting, right, is like it's um we say like the people rule and how do they rule? Well, uh, there are like hugely opaque uh, Byzantine bu- party bureaucracies that sort of right. decide for you like a forced choice every four years where you get to check one of two boxes and that means you get to rule. Like, yeah. sure, like that's like one version of ruling. <laughs> but um, I think like, you know, sometimes people want to be able to express much deeper and more complicated things than like yes or no or like this person versus that person. And yeah. finding opportunities to be able to do that effectively seems to me to be really important. Yeah, I and I, I agree with you about your point about like, Centrism. I think sometimes when when people sort of look at the dysfunctions, it's like, well, you know, we just need like somebody who's like really calm and normal, yeah. like you know, yeah. we need like a, yeah. a really well polished yeah. McKinsey consultant to save us, you know. And I, yeah. it's like, yeah. no, like, yeah, yeah, I, I, like I, like a like a thirty six year old mayor of South Bend who uh, yeah. who used, who used <laughs> yeah. to be a consultant, yeah. 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 yeah, you know, yeah. that'll um, be great. That'll be great. And like, that's not, that's not, you know, that's not going to do, that's not going to do it. Right. I, I mean, you do need no, something, no um, something that provokes really genuine passion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just not in the, in the sort of like reactive, defensive, um, fear different way that, that, that we currently do. Right. I mean, this is like the way that I want to defend democracy is like, let's defend democracy on maximal terms, that it gives you actually more capacity to have human passion, like a much more extensive ability to explore those things than you would in a society that is maybe like more um, homogenous and and more hierarchical, but like also like pretty determined in a particular direction. Like the cool thing about democracy, like I think that the version of democracy that we have is at risk of like being a minimalist democracy where like everyone has said, just don't believe anything. Don't feel anything too deeply because otherwise the whole thing is going to totally collapse. Like that's not my favorite version of democracy. (laughs) Like the version that I want is like a version where you say, okay, like we have like certain ways and habits of doing things and certain structures, but the goal of all those structures is to make it so that everyone can feel things very, very deeply and profoundly and that we can actually explore these like extensive, bigger features of human life. And that we, there is some way to start doing that collectively as well. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom? I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>